aren't you thankful that we have Christ as our cornerstone? I want to tell just a little story, um, something that happened a couple weeks ago with my, my six-year-old son. So um, I'm doing something in the kitchen, I don't remember what, and he says, hey, Dad, would you, would you open your arms like this and just kind of get down low? And so I did, and he takes a couple steps back, and he runs, he runs up to me, runs into my arms. And, I, you know, we give each other a hug, and he's like, I think that's what it meant when the song said, the Father's arms are open wide. So, <clears throat> I think, you know, that's a teachable moment, probably for me more than him. Um, he knew what it meant, but, you know, I, I was thinking about, for, for me, there's nothing that I could think of that he could do as my son that would prevent me from welcoming him like that, right? And just think about um, our Heavenly Father and how much greater his love is than mine, right? Um, it's, just, it's just an amazing thing to think about. So, as we... As we sing this next song, which has a, a part in it about running into his arms, think about that, that picture of his, his arms open wide for you. Amen. What a privilege it is for us to have a loving Father in heaven who welcomes us with open arms and we can run into his arms. I invite you to Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, when the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing I desire on earth besides thee, my flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my life and my portion forever. I confess, Father, that when I read it, I want those words to be true, and yet they are not always true. And I pray that I would get to know you well enough and trust you and love you enough that you would be not just all that I need, but all that I want. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you, we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that we might be not just informed, but transformed by the power of your Spirit working in us and through us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most convincing impersonators that I have ever seen in Hollywood was the late Robin Williams. He was able to impersonate a lot of different people, and he did it really, really well. But there's a, and it was humorous when he did it, but there's a, another form of impersonation that is more harmful than humorous. And that is when people steal your identity. They get a hold of your personal information and criminals use it for their own dark purposes. But I'd like to submit this morning, and you can chew on it, you can challenge me later, that there's an even more deadly and pernicious form of impersonation that we need to be wary of, especially in the church of Jesus Christ. And that is people who profess to be children of God who don't actually possess a personal relationship with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So they are imposters in the church of Jesus Christ. And there's a danger that we could be in that camp if we're not careful. 
John wrote to his readers, including us, that they would know that they had fellowship with each other and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He wrote to them so that they might know that they have eternal life. This is John, 1 John 5, 13, that you have eternal life. But the basis for that fellowship, the basis for any assurance that we know we possess what we profess, is that we have personally put our faith or our trust in the identity, the ministry, and the message of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That we're truly in the family of God. Now, John was addressing these Gnostic heretics in his day, and as he did so, he sought to confront them head on, and what he did then was enacted a series of stringent tests that the believers, the professing believers, could put themselves under in order to prove that they truly were children of the living God. They would distinguish themselves from the imposters. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, we see the first of these tests that's articulated for us. And that test is only of those who are walking in the light, whose life of integrity matches their talk that they're in the family. So their life of integrity is consistent with their talk that they're part of the family. Those are truly children of God. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John. It's almost to the end of the book of the Bible. So if you get to Revelation, just go backwards and not very far, you get to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So you pick up where we left off last week. But in this section, 5 through 10, verses 5 through 10, we see that we can walk in the light. Proving that we what we profess is actually what we possess if we meet two conditions. First John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Some pretty potent stuff there. The first condition for us to truly possess what we profess in order to walk in the light is that we, if if we embrace the backbone of our fellowship, and when I use the word backbone, I think I'm thinking in terms of that uncompromising truth that we must embrace 
that enables us to walk in the light. For us to have a genuine connection with God the Father, God the Son, and His people, there must be some truth that we embrace that cannot be deviated from. And I think the truth that is given here is the message. When John says, this is the message we heard, which I found kind of interesting as he distills down the message that he heard from Jesus, this is what he says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness None at all. Now, you look at your Bibles. Do you see in your Bibles where it says, in him there is no darkness, none at all? No, you didn't see the second part, did you? You didn't see the none at all. But in the Greek text, it's emphatic, a double negative, emphatic. In him there is no darkness, absolutely none. God is light. And so in the, in the scriptures, when you contrast light and darkness, intellectually, it's a contrast between truth and error. Morally, it's a contrast between good and evil. And so John says the message we heard, which was the word incarnated, Jesus is the light, and in him, as the manifestation of God in the flesh, is no darkness None at all. One of the verses in the Bible that characterizes our age, I think, as no other verse is Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That is the age in which we live. You read the newspapers. You listen to what's politically correct and socially acceptable. It's evil that's declared to be good. It's darkness that's substituted for light. To say that God is light is to say that that is his character. The same as to say God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. God is light. That's who he is. That's his essential character. In him, there is not even a hint of evil, of ignorance, or of error. Last Sunday, I was preaching and mentioned one of my favorite movies was The Incredibles. And you saw this same picture on the screen if you're here. And I mentioned that Flash in the movie Incredibles is the incarnation of his name. And then... After the service, I was duly informed that his name is Dash, not Flash. Because in Steve, there is error, there is darkness, there is ignorance, there is potential to make mistakes, but not in God. In him, there is no darkness, none at all. There is no error, there's no mistake, there's no ignorance, there is no evil whatsoever. God is infinite in His perfection. He is absolute in His holiness. He is lofty in His majesty. And He is transcendent in His being. And this pure light 
came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ, God's Son. The absolute antithesis of those to whom He came. John tells us in John chapter 3, and I want you to see this on the screen, in verses 19 through the first part of 20, and this is the judgment that light is come into the world. The light is Jesus, who is the incarnation of God the Father. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light. That's us. All of humanity is in this boat. Our complacency, our contempt is in direct contrast to His compassion. Because He is light, and in Him is no, no darkness at all, and yet He came into the world to cohabitate with us in whom is no light, no light at all. Now you see that our sinfulness is there, and yet he remained unstained. How many of you wear white pants successfully? You, know, you do that thing really well? I mean, if you find somebody who wears white pants and they do it well, probably should stay away from them. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I don't do white pants. I mean, I, I used to wear white pants, and I'd wear white I mean, I'd, I couldn't even get out the door without having some smear or smudge or mark on it. I am a mess in white pants. The Son of God came into the world, and He remained unstained unmarred in his perfection as he lived in, in among us. And only as we understand the holiness of God in contrast to our imperfections is there even a chance that we will enter into fellowship with God, let alone enjoy communion with this holy and righteous God. We must see that our sin is the impediment that prevents us from experiencing a relationship with God and also keeps us out of fellowship with God once we have entered into that relationship. A.W. Tozier is, I think, spot on when he says this statement. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Oh, God's my buddy. God's my right-hand man. God's my go-to guy. John told his readers, in him is no, no darkness at all. He is absolutely holy. If we fail, if I fail to see the perfection of God in contrast to my perversion, there is absolutely no hope for me to have an, a relationship with God or to have assurance that I am in communion with God in any consistent way. And we must understand that there are barriers. John lays out these barriers that stand in our way, and John is careful to articulate. First of all, if we are to know that we possess what we profess, if we are to walk in the light, we must embrace this backbone 
that God is absolutely holy and we are not. Secondly, we must erase the blockade, anything that stands in the way. And John lays it out for us pretty neatly in the text, I think. If you look at the phrases in verse 6, 8, and 10, there's a repeated phrase. If we say that, if we say that, if we say that. Three barriers we must bust through if we are to possess what we profess, if we are to be walking in the light. And there, all of them are a deficient view of our sinfulness in light of God's holiness. First of all, if we deny the perversity of sin, we're in danger of only professing and not possessing eternal life. Notice the verses 6 and 7, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We refers to every professing believer. If you profess faith in Christ, it's the we. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's professing that we have a relationship with him, and do and walk in darkness, we are a liar. and Do not practice the truth. See, the Gnostics in, in John's day, they taught that they could somehow be removed from moral responsibility. They didn't have to, they were independent and in their thinking, and so they had to, no obligation to fulfill any moral responsibility, which is boneheaded in its concept. I mean, it's just, but that's what they thought. So John refutes them. And by simply saying, you can say, oh, we have fellowship with God and Father and the believers, we're all in this together, which is kind of like what a lot of people say today, right? It's like, well, yeah, everybody's a Christian, you know, everybody's a nice guy, a nice guy, a nice guy. It's a lot of nice people that are going to be in hell because they walk in darkness. He says... Just because you say it doesn't make it so. I have a riddle for you. It's really tough. If I tell you that a sheep's tail is a leg, how many legs does a sheep have? Four. Just because I say that the tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. Just because I say I'm a Christian doesn't make me a Christian. Just because I walk. My Sunday school teacher, bless her heart, Edith Olson, had a little sign above our Sunday school class. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. And John points out the incongruity of walking in the darkness. Now, what does it mean to walk in the darkness? Let me be clear here. Walking in the darkness means an ongoing pattern of sin. It's, it's a perpetual sinful life. What John goes on to say and articulate, and we'll see this, is that even if we profess faith in Christ, even if we truly possess faith in Christ, we still sin. That's, that's another problem that the Gnostics had, and even Christians kind of think, well, I, I'm kind of exempt from that too. But we are talking about someone whose perpetual orientation is sinfulness. 
And Paul agrees, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, What fellowship does light have with darkness and darkness with light? Don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or fellowship has light with darkness? They don't exist. Water and oil don't mix. It's impossible to have fellowship with God who is the light. To be in a relationship, a dynamic, living relationship with the God of the universe who is light, absolutely no darkness at all, while I'm just walking around living in sin, consciously doing it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, kind of makes the, a, a similar point. For you were formerly darkness. Now get that? He's talking to those who are believers. You were formerly darkness. Not, not darkness now. You were formerly darkness. Now you are light in the world. Friends, let's live who we are. Let's be who we are. If we are children of God, then let's live as children of God and walk in the light. It's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it isn't true just because he went to the cross. It's only possible to those who believe. Those who think they can walk in darkness and say that they have fellowship with God, what does the text say they are? Liars. I can say I'm a Cyclone fan, and if all I wear is Hawkeye stuff, and all I do is go to Hawkeye games, and all I cheer for when the Cyclones play the Hawkeyes are the Hawkeyes, you'd say I'm Jeff Westfall. I mean... I, I'm, I'm, I'm lying. I'm not truly uh, who I say I am. It's incongruous. It doesn't match. When a person's walk lacks integrity, their talk is empty. If I say I'm a child of God and I live like the devil, who listens to me? And parents, believe you me, children can nail hypocrites and see them a mile away. They understand it and they know it. Those who walk in darkness do not practice the truth. That means that that's not the ongoing pattern of their life. Oh, there are points in life. If you look at any of us at a point, you know, this point in your life, you know, you'd say, that guy's not a believer. You know, if we could play on the screen your thought life at any point in life, if we could play on the screen what you thought about what you would do in any circumstance, how you would treat the person who just cut in front of you in traffic, how you would deal with the person in your family that annoys you to death, boom, we would be disqualified on that basis. But that's not what John is saying. John is saying as the ongoing pattern of your life, if it's inconsistent. There was a, a man several years ago who lived in the town where, where we were from, and he was, uh, he's very well known in the town, okay? And he, he bought a new car. Actually, it wasn't a new car. It was a different car. But on the car, you know, it had the, had the Ichthus bumper sticker, and he had some verses, and he had these quotes. So obviously he bought it from somebody who was a professing Christian. But I'll tell you what, that this guy's life betrayed what his car displayed. Okay. 
don't know about you, but there's a reason I don't have an ichthus on my bumper sticker. I'm just being honest. I mean, and sometimes when I'm driving, I'm not always Christ-like. And I don't say that proudly. I just say that, you know, I mean, sometimes I honk at people when I shouldn't honk at people. And sometimes I, uh, you know, just be careful. We have to watch what we say and what we do, what we're putting out there. We should be putting out there Jesus and, and being consistent, but we're not always consistent. So John goes on in John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and he says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought of God. You see that in darkness there is no mixing with the light. How many of you have ever been in a cave? Ever been in a cave? Yeah, so what's the standard drill when you're in a cave, right? They shut out the lights. You can't see your hand in front of your face. If someone just clicks their on button on their cell phone, boom, it's like, whoa, where did that light come from? The light dispels the darkness. And if we are children of the light, we don't walk in darkness. That's not the behavior. That's not to say that Christians don't sin. We do. But we don't live that pattern. Of, of, of that way. So I want to say, John, Matthew, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we, you know, you'll know them by their fruits. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, uh, not everyone, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. I wonder this morning if anyone here, if, if we're here, are we impersonating those who profess faith in Jesus? Or are we truly settled in our soul that we're a child of God? Now, if, if you're here and you know that there's sin in your life and you're, you're dealing with it and you're confessing it and you're trying, see, that's probably, you're probably not an imposter. Because if you're convicted by your sin, then you're aware that you're sinning and that's not consistent with God's word. But if you're continually doing it and consciously doing it and trying to ignore God, then it's like, whoa, wait a second. Let me, let me put a hold on it. Verse 7, walk in the light. That's the call. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then what? Here's how we know. Is that we know we possess what we profess. If we walk in the light, what we have fellowship. We have fellowship. That's what he says. We have fellowship with one another, and what? The blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from our sins, washes us clean. We walk in night. See, walking in the light is not just how we live, it's where we live. It's not just how, it, which it does involve how. It is obedience to the Word of God. But it is where I live in communion with God. I'm in the light. I'm in the presence of the light. And I'm living out. Two obvious uh, things that, uh, you know, it means that we, we don't have any dishonesty. There's no deceit. 
ongoing. There's no ongoing conscious awareness of a sin in my life that I'm just doing this because I want to keep doing this and I don't want God to tell me about it. Now, some of us have what I would call, and it's not unique to me, an Achilles heel. You know, some of us have areas in our life where it's just, oh, I just don't seem to get victory over my anxiety or I just can't seem to get victory over some lustful thoughts sometimes. But there are times you go back and forth and back and forth and God is able to give us victory ultimately. But we struggle. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here, what I think John's talking about, is a persistent pattern of sin that we choose and we're going there. And he says that there's two obvious results of, of walking in the light. We have fellowship, communion with other believers because the other believers in the light. And then we have forgiveness. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. Notice that's a present tense verb cleanses us, cleanses us because, in fact, we have been justified through personal faith in Jesus Christ. That's initial justification, but it continually ongoing cleansing as we repent, confess, and get right with God. It maintains that fellowship with God. There is this ongoing cleansing work of the blood which began at salvation and continues. John Stott says it I think fittingly, what is clear is that if we walk in the light, God has through the blood of Christ made provision to cleanse us from any and all sin that would mar or impede our fellowship with God or other believers. Folks, that's what Jesus does for us. He cleanses us. Washes us white as snow, white as snow, though my sins be as scarlet, this I know. Through the power of his blood, I am white as snow. That's the blessed truth. And not until the light of God's purity exposes the darkness of our depravity and we repent and turn from our sin will we enter into this relationship or be able to enjoy fellowship on any consistent basis. Secondly, second blockade. First is if we deny the perversity of sin. The second one is if we deny the presence of, of sin. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. So there again, okay, so you see the, the contrast there? If we say that we are in fellowship but we walk in darkness, so if our life is a persistent mess of sin, then we're, we're not one of God's children. But if we say that we don't have any sin, that's not true either. And basically what he's talking about is the sin principle. See, the Gnostics, these wonderfully brilliant people, uh, believed that they were, had such superior enlightenment that they were free from the sin principle in their life. It had been eradicated. Therefore, they didn't have to worry about how they acted because it wasn't coming from them. It wasn't sin in their lives. I'm thinking, that's pretty convenient. That's a delusion. They didn't have to strive. They took no responsibility. This is a self-deception. Parents, parents only, how many of you taught your children to be selfish? Like, this is mine, mine, mine. You can't have it, mine. How many of us taught our kids to be proud? How many of them taught our children, well, maybe we did teach them a little bit to be greedy at Christmas time, uh, but 
Or how many taught their children, deliberately, intentionally taught your kid to say bad words? Nobody. But they do. They are greedy, they are proud, they are selfish, and they say bad words. They lie, they steal sometimes, they do. Why? Why is that? Because there's no sin in them? No, because there is sin in them. Do you understand that the humanistic perspective in the world says that man is basically good and that is poppycock? That is bunk. That is garbage. And the Gnostics said, we have come to such superior enlightenment that we have no sin principle left in us. A danger in the church of Jesus Christ is that we have been so educated in the truth of the gospel, so educated and pontificated about what we know, that we come to this point in our life and we say, yeah, you know, I just really can't remember the last time I sinned. I just don't think that there's... That is a lie from the pit of hell. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Professing believers, be warned. We have this tendency to say, well, you know, I would never do that. You know? I mean, I'm not a really good guy, but I would never do, you know, that. Read Chuck Colson's book, The Body. And in that book, there is a graphic picture. I think the guy's name is Yehul Demur. I can't remember the exact pronunciation. But he saw the execution of Adolf Eichmann, was a witness to the execution. And his commentary on the execution was this, Eichmann is in all of us. Because when he looked into the eyes of Adolf Eichmann, he saw humanity in its destitute condition. We are all at the core, wicked, sinful people. We are just as capable of greed and as pride and jealousy and immorality as the next person because the sin principle is latent within us. Praise God that through the person and work of Jesus, those who put their faith or their trust in Christ have victory over the power of sin. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Therefore, we're no longer slaves of sin. But we are never free from the presence of sin until glory, until glorification. And to say otherwise is wrong. Our proclivity to perversion should keep us close to the cross. Because I sin, I need his cleansing on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. To deny sin's presence is to eliminate the need for the person and the work of Jesus. What do we need Jesus for if there's no sin in us? We absolutely need him because of our sin. Thirdly, if we deny the practice of sin, verse 10. So, the perversity of sin, the presence of sin, the practice of sin... Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, that is, I, I, don't, I don't do sin, you know, no actual sin committed. This is the worst of all deceptions. Notice the progression. If I deny the perversity of sin, then I'm a liar. If I deny the presence of sin, then I'm just self-deceived. But if I deny that I practice sin, look at the text. What does verse 10 say? I make 
God to be a liar. In him is no, no darkness at all. I I, got to get chills when I start thinking about me standing there shaking my fist at God and saying, you are a liar. Remember the story in the Old Testament of Uzzah who stuck his hand out and touched the ark to keep it from toppling over? Boom, you're gone. There's a reason why God gave us Leviticus, because he is holy. And we need to see that he is holy. And if we don't see that he's holy, we don't see how horrible we are. If we don't see how horrible we are, we have nothing to repent of. We have nothing to turn from. We will not turn and trust him. We deny the practice of sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. If God is truth, and this is in his word, which is truth, and we say, that's not true of me, then we call him a liar. We call him a liar. Maybe this doesn't happen in your home, but there have been many times in our life as we've raised our kids that I will walk out of a room or walk into a room, go down to the basement, and I, the light's on, and I said, somebody left the light on in the basement. Somebody left the bathroom light on. Somebody left the window open. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Nobody did it. So I am a liar. It makes me a liar. Somebody did it. That's us with God. We make him out to be a liar. How can there be communion with God? How can there be fellowship with God? How can I be assured that I possess what I profess if I call him a liar? If his word is not in me and I do not believe that is true. And so how is this fellowship between a holy God and a horrible people possible? The answer is repentance. That's verse 9. If we confess our sins. You see, because we do. We sin. We practice sin. There's the presence of sin. And sin is perverse. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I think the primary emphasis in verse 9 of 1 John 1 is for those who profess, who truly are children of God, who are sinning, and that sinning breaks their fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Our part is confession. But isn't it interesting? I've been heard, you know, a lot of prayer meetings. We go, Lord, forgive us for our sins. Well, what sins? You see, to confess is to name it. Lord, I'm so sorry that I've been so greedy. God, forgive me for my jealous attitude towards my neighbor who just got this nice new Jaguar, and I really wish I could have one. Uh, Lord, forgive me for my critical spirit that always wants to put people down instead of see what they do that's well. Father, forgive me for my lack of love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ in this body of believers. I I, I tend to find myself being critical of them instead of praying for them and encouraging them and building them up. God, would you forgive me for my pride because I just confess that sometimes I just want to be noticed. I just want somebody to appreciate what I've done. I just want them to give me a slap on the back and a good old attaboy and and, and say, good job. 
And sometimes I find myself playing to their praise instead of just serving you. I mean, when was the last time that we just confessed our sin? That's our part. What's his part? Faithful and just. Faithful is his character. He's faithful to his person. That's who he is. And to his promise that he will forgive. And he's just. How is he just? Because Jesus paid it all. The payment has been made. It's just that you and I don't have to make that payment. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you understand? I was sitting in the first service this morning. We were talking about how blessed it is that, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And then at the end, it kind of wrapped it up and tied it in with the fact that it's not just my sins are forgiven. How blessed that is for those who are trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But the righteousness of Christ clothes me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set them free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. It's not just that my sins are forgiven. I am now considered righteous before a holy God. That's the blessedness of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and through Him. This week, you have a chance to vote. Go vote. Educate yourself and vote as Christian people, as possessing, not professing, merely believers. How do you know who to vote for? Well, don't go by what they say. Go by what they do. Because talk is cheap. The same is true for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who profess faith in Christ. Hold our actions up to God who is the light in whom is no darkness and darkness at all and say, Lord, let's stop playing games. Let's, let's quit denying the perversity of sin and acknowledge its perversity. Let's quit denying the presence of sin and acknowledge, yes, I do sin. And let's quit denying the practice of sin. We practice sin, but praise God. We can be redeemed. We can be forgiven. Repentance is the key. And as we come to celebrate the Lord's table, isn't it that repentance of sin brings rebellious hearts like ours? Some who've never turned and trusted Christ, and some who've turned and trusted Christ, we're just struggling. And God makes provision, confess our sins, and repent. What's this? See, it's consciousness of sin. It's contrition of sin. It's um, uh, being... Uh, Sorry for that sin, and then consecrating ourselves not to sin anymore. That's the, that's the repentance that, that needs to take place. There is this awareness, consciousness. There's this conviction. There's contrition. There's confession, and then there's consecration. That's repentance. But the only reason that repentance has power, the only reason that it is profitable, is because of what Jesus did. I can, I, I'm sorry. I mean, my mom used to say, if you're sorry, it won't happen again. 
Eh, not entirely true. Sorry, Mom. Uh, she's here this morning, so. Uh, but it was a good reminder that there was real, is there any real contrition? Is there any real sorrow, any repentance? And when we repent, that leads to forgiveness is possible. See, repentance is the only thing that brings rebellious sinners into a relationship with God. It's the only thing that keeps rebellious sinners who are in a relationship with God in communion with God. It has power because of what Jesus did. He paid it all. And when we accept his death on the cross as the payment for our sins, we not only are cleansed, but we are given new life and righteousness. And so as we take these elements, let us, number one, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, my call to you is to repent and turn and trust Christ as your Savior. Those of us who know Christ, take some moments in the pew to repent, actual repent, of known sins that God brings to your mind before you come up and you take this bread, which is a symbol of his body, broken for you, and the cup which is a symbol of his blood which was shed for you and then rejoice that you've been washed clean and you bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul father as we break this bread and we share this cup together I pray that your spirit would work powerfully in us those who don't know Christ, that they would turn from their sin and trust you initially and find that cleansing, washing of your spirit, the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And those of us who know you, Lord, bring to mind the sin that we need to repent of. Let us come with clean hearts to accept your sacrifice as the payment we deserve that we might restore our fellowship with you and leave this place rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name.